ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, this is The Money. Richard Aidy with you. It has four balance sheets, three cultures, four executive boards. It's a conglomerate that's in the money lending business and its customers are the people who need money the most. I'm talking about the World Bank, which as of Friday has a new boss, the Indian-American businessman, former head of MasterCard, Ajay Banga. Rachel Kite used to work at the bank. These days, she's dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University in the US. Rachel, the new guy starts on Friday... What challenges is the bank facing? It's sitting in the middle of what is now commonly called a poly crisis. More and more countries becoming debt distressed over the last few years, a culmination of many factors, including the knock-on impacts of COVID, the dislocation to economic growth, the global impact of a war in Ukraine, and on and on, right? So we've seen countries entering into debt distress, so becoming indebted, dangerously so. We've seen also a climate crisis really start to crunch down, which means that for many countries, they're losing growth every year as a result of the impacts of climate change, whether it's an extreme weather event, whether it's drought, whether it's extreme rainfall. And so in the middle of that, we have more countries needing more help but that help has to be delivered in a different way because these crises aren't certainly certainly the climate crisis is not going away. Mm. So the question is, how do you help countries grow? How do you help them develop when the world is pushing them backwards from many different directions? The stakes are very considerable. Challenges are considerable too. And a new boss walks through the door in a few days. What should be the first thing that, that he does? Take a deep breath. <laughs> and talk to the staff. I think that uh, Ajay Banga's arriving at a time where uh, the crises facing the world and therefore facing the bank are sort of unprecedented in their complexity and in their combination. And so he has a significant staff all across the world, many of whom are absolutely brilliant. And they need to be pointed in the right direction. They need to be focused on their clients. They need to be responsive. They need to be flexible, adaptive, creative. This isn't business as usual. And he's going to need all of them pointed in the right direction. So, uh, yeah, take a breath. And then he comes in at a time when the people who own the banks, the countries that put money in, and the countries who borrow from the bank are probably more united than ever in the fact that the bank has to be quicker more efficient, more effective. The detail of that, they may disagree on, but he's got some wind in his sails, I think. People need for him to succeed. He's come from MasterCard, I think. Yeah, so he has been the CEO of a financial firm. He understands financial inclusion. He understands what it is to be at the very end of the financial value chain, as it were. Uh, He grew up in India. He's worked in marketing. He's worked in sales. He's worked in the private sector, he has managed change management in a big multinational company. Mm. And so he's going to bring financial wherewithal 
a commitment to development, an understanding of inequity, and then significant managerial capability to the job. I think that's one reason why people are excited. This is AJ Banger. And and you've already said the first thing he has to do is take a deep breath and listen. And I suppose, get the house in order, which is a complicated thing. Yep. You also say that he has to kind of assume the mantle of collaborator in chief. Now, what, what do you mean by that? When the World Bank Group was created 79 years ago as part of the Bretton Woods institutions, it, there was the bank and then there was the IMF. And that was it. Over the last 70 odd years, there have been regional development banks created, uh, the Asia Development Bank, mm. the Africa Development Bank. And then over the last 10 to 15 years, China came forward with a new development bank, the BRICS Bank, and a uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And so the multilateral development bank system is now a collection of many banks. Now, if you're a developing country and you're trying to borrow money or you're trying to get advice, you're now faced with many different options, often providing you different advice on different terms, different lending. And so the way that the system works is as important as the way that the World Bank works. The World Bank is primus inter pares. It is the most important. It has the greatest technical capacity. It has the biggest balance sheet. But if we're going to face down climate change, if we're going to really help countries get out from under all of these problems, it's going to require the system. And I think people are looking at Ajay Banga and saying, as the president of the World Bank, we need you to be collaborator in chief. We need you to sort of bring about some kind of radical cooperation within the system. That's going to require real diplomatic skills. And from what you've written too, it's, it doesn't end there. He's actually got to be, as well as a collaborator, a kind of convener with the broader financial system. Yeah. So the, the World Bank president has awesome convening power and can use a bully pulpit, can sort of call people in and sort of say, you know, the world needs to respond to this crisis. Uh, You can look at the great financial crisis of of 2008, and it was the head of the World Trade Organization and the head of the World Bank that sort of jumped in and said, "Okay, trade finance is necessary for developing countries to keep operating. And within 60 to 90 days, we had a trade finance system that embraced the world. So the president of the World Bank can call people's attention to an issue, can convene the owners of the bank, can convene developing countries, can convene the rest of the international system, can slam his hand down on the table and ask for people to pay attention, as well as be a servant of the owners of the bank. It requires an approach to multilateralism where you are prepared to be magnanimous in your leadership. So sometimes you can get things done by not claiming all the credit yourself. Mm. You know, if you can get the system to do things, if you can get other countries to say, look at this brilliant idea I've had, you know, success has many parents, failure is an orphan. It's also very important that the World Bank president has a great relationship with the head of the UN, because again, when it comes to immediate responses to crises, whether they be humanitarian or natural disasters or climate-induced natural disasters, then the combination of how the UN system and the World Bank group works together, that that becomes really important. I had not realised the level of diplomatic skills required in this role, that ability to both, I suppose, have the power to pick up the phone and get almost anyone you want on it. But then if if you can solve it, they get most of the credit and you get a bit. That requires a real, I suppose, deftness of approach, doesn't it? It's the same would be true for the Secretary General of the UN or for, for any alliance job. You know, the trick of it is that the members should be able to claim the successes and, 
you know, of course, if there's a failure, everybody, everybody will point at the multilateral system or, or one or the other. But I think it is important. And also, it's very important to sort of run around the private sector. You've got to leverage private banks. You've got to leverage private equity, the insurance industry. Uh, all of that is going to be needed. And a, one of the other things that Ajay Banga brings to this role is this facility and experience mm. with the private sector, because a large part of the bill for the things that need to get paid for is going to be as a result of private sector investment. You raise the fact that there's sort of four things he needs to do. We've talked about the first three, so getting the house in order, being a collaborator in chief, being a convener. What's the last one? He has to be a champion of the most vulnerable. A large part of what the bank group does, a large part of what the international system is doing, you know, has beneficiaries and they are the ones who don't get heard. They don't get heard often in their own countries. They don't even get counted sometimes. And so it is important if the ultimate beneficiary or the client is the woman who is running a small business out of her kitchen in Uganda or a, a woman trying to make ends meet for the family in, in a nomadic community in the north of Niger or somebody in Vanuatu. These people have to be heard and their particular dynamic, you know, the way in which they manage their money, the way in which they seek opportunity, the way in which the system could be made to work for them is something that won't get heard. And it, it, I think the president of the World Bank with a mission of ending poverty, they have to be able to mm. keep them in mind because otherwise they get forgotten. Each of these, Rachel, is, is a lot and together it's a Herculean task. You, you spent years at the World Bank, which is why you're able to give us these insights. Given that, how confident are you that he can actually do this? It's not a job for one person, right? So while I think many of us are very enthusiastic about his nomination, very supportive of his leadership, that it's not just something for one person to do. And that would be incredibly unfair to put on his shoulders too much expectation. The system needs to help him succeed. And that means that some of the conversations that are already happening, which will get more and more serious over the course of the year around system reform, about making sure that the capital is available, helping him make the reforms that will be needed to make the institution faster and more effective. People have to deliver uh, themselves. So that means the G7 countries, it means those that own the bank. And it, it means that there has to be outside of his personal convening and his personal collaboration, a greater effort to agree on priorities. So he has uh, all of the skills uh, proven in his track record and in his leadership, but he needs the system to hang on in there with him. And he needs uh, people, states, countries, companies to step up in a way that they haven't quite done yet. Well, watch this space. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. No, oh, thank you. Rachel Kite is Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Aged care workers are getting a pay rise, 15%. It's costing $11.3 billion over four years, which may not be enough to do at least part of what it's supposed to do, attract more people to the sector. This is just one of the concerning points to emerge from the latest edition of Australia's aged care sector, a report put out by the University of Technology, Sydney. Its lead author is Nicole Sutton. Nicole, welcome back. I take it this extra money, which was in the budget, doesn't mean the sector's financial troubles are over? Unfortunately not. I mean, the additional funding is definitely important and the sector would be in a much worse financial position if they hadn't received that funding. 
But nonetheless, many of the financial and workforce issues that we see, they still persist. What is the financial position of the sector? Yeah, so when we look at the organisations, the overall organisations that provide aged care, we can see that based of the December 22 results, 64% are reporting an operating loss. And perhaps more concerningly, more than half of them have reported a loss now for two consecutive years. And that that really creates, you know, the risk that you're going to get some disruptive exits that could kind of undermine services to communities. What are the homes losing per resident per day? Each nursing home on average is losing $17 per resident per day. And I also want to mention on the other side, into home care services as well, they're now, the margin is 93 cents per client per day. So on both your home care and residential care, the financial positions are not looking good. Now, as I understand it, and especially from reading your latest report, most of the losses are in what's called non-care services. We can see that homes are losing about $7 a day in terms of what's called everyday living services. And this is, you know, basic amenities like catering and food and cleaning uh, and laundry. And then they're also on top of that losing an additional $14 a day from accommodation services. So, you know, providing the buildings and the equipment and the vehicles. And so those two things, everyday living and accommodation, I mean, that's that's $21 they're losing per day, which cannot be offset by any kind of margins they, they might make from direct care. This is the thing. I mean, it's helpful to, to remember that every resident sort of comes with three bits of funding for three different things. Correct. Yes. So we have the care, which is might be clinical care or personal care. Then we have that everyday living, so the basic amenities, and then you have your accommodation. And so we've got three different funding streams. And what we can see is while direct care pays for itself just, they're losing money in terms of the provision of food and accommodation. And that's where really most of the financial problems in what we call the business model exist. Is it going to be enough, this $15 billion? Sounds like it has to be. But given that service levels... So staff, particularly nurses, providing care for minimum amounts of time, those numbers that govern the industry, they're going up. Mm, absolutely. So we've, we've forecast the funding for care, so for nurses and personal care workers, that the government announced as part of the budget. And we looked for ne- at next year. And what we can see is that the funding is enough. Like it, it does cover the wage is increased. It does cover the additional minutes required. It also covers, you know, some things to do with inflation and so on. But, and there's a big but, it assumes that we have the same sort of staffing mix that homes are using right now. If they have to increase the use of more expensive staffing options, like such as using overtime of their permanent staff or agency staff, those are much more expensive sources of labour. So that margin kind of disappears and it might not be enough in that case. So hang on, what percentage of homes don't need to use things like overtime or or bring in agency staff? Right now, about 10% of homes have a staffing that's sufficient to meet these new standards, which will become mandatory in, well, the 24-7 RN becomes mandatory in July. And then they've got these care minute targets that are mandatory by October. As a home, you have to meet all three standards and only 10% of homes currently would, which means that, you know, in between, we're probably going to have to see most homes 
they're not going to be able to find, you know, lots and lots of employees. So they're probably going to have to rely more on overtime and agency staff to make up that gap. What What is the gap, Nicole, if, we, if the difference between what the new service levels will require and, and I suppose the number that are currently working in the sector? What we had estimated that they need between now and July and October is they'll need about 12,500 additional direct care workers and an additional... 6,000 registered nurses. Hmm. But there's not 6,000 registered nurses sitting under a rock somewhere in Australia. These people don't necessarily exist right now. And that's where the, the kind of real pressure point is going to be in the coming months. So 12,500 full-time equivalent direct care workers, including the nearly 6,000 registered nurses. Hmm. I'm thinking, though, the government will be thinking, hang on, though, this improvement in pay, that is supposed to attract more people into the industry, isn't it? It's supposed to pull people in so that workforce grows. Yeah, and I think that's a reasonable assumption. It's certainly going to help. By the, the wage increase of 15% at least brings aged care work on parity with other parts of the care economy. And in one sense, that's the bet. You know, if we can improve uh, workers' pay, then more people will potentially be attracted and also less people will leave, you know. And we do know that turnover is such a big issue, you know, when you've got turnover of 30 40% within the sector, you want to attenuate that. And other things might help as well in terms of, say, changes to immigration and so on. But these mandatory staffing requirements, these are things that are going to have to happen now. And that's where finding you know, 6,000 registered nurses and another 6,000 additional workers on top of that, I imagine homes are going to have to rely on more short-term staffing strategies to fill that gap. And that's why we're likely to see an uptick in overtime and agency staffing. Right. So there's no hidden reserve of 6,000 registered nurses. We, we, And I think you made this point when we spoke in March. There's basically a global shortage of nurses and there's, glo- yes, there's demand for nurses everywhere, right? Yeah, absolutely. There is a global shortage of nurses. And this is, this is why, while we might open up, you know, with immigration, again, where are these nurses going to come from? So that shortfall, you think, well, obviously what they have to do, the homes, is do it via overtime, do it via agency staff. That means that the $15 billion is not going to be enough. Quite possibly, yeah. So if we know that agency staff, for example, you, you have to pay, you know, an additional 30% compared to your permanent employees. Likewise, with overtime, you're having to pay higher rates. Uh, when we said before that the funding was enough to cover the costs of care, that is based on assumption that they don't need to use those strategies. And if they do, then it's not going to be enough. Right. I'm not a betting man. If I was a betting man, Nicole, I would bet that it's going to turn out to be not enough. All right. I want to go back to the financial position of the sector, uh, which is kind of the, the, the bigger issue, the bigger problem. Half of homes have been making losses for two consecutive years now. How sustainable is this? One thing I do have to correct you on, the providers are the ones that are actually got the two consecutive years. So they're the organisational entities above homes. We haven't done the modelling yet of how many homes per se have got consecutive things. So, Fair <laughs> um, enough. But if we go back to the kind of question of, well, how sustainable is this? Sustainability has several dimensions. You know, it, it includes having enough workers for services. It includes having, you know, viable providers and having community acceptance that the services are good quality. But sustainability also has this fiscal dimension, you know, 
can taxpayers afford to fund these services now and into the future? And the budget that was released this year has some new forecasts of funding for aged care and taxpayer spending on aged care. And it shows that we're reaching a critical point. Next year, aged care spending is going to reach about $35 billion per year. It's more than Medicare. It's more than double JobSeeker. And it's going to be equivalent to about 1.5% of GDP. That number is really important because just two years ago in the long-term forecast, the intergenerational report, Treasury expected us, Australia, to reach this level of spending on aged care by 2035, this 1.5% of GDP. We expected to get there in 2035. But what we now know is we're going to reach that point next year, a decade ahead of that forecast. Fiscally terrifying is the phrase that leaps to mind. Nicole Sutton is at the UTS Ageing Research Collaborative. And if you want to know more about the funding of residential aged care, there's a special edition of the money that we did in March. It's on our homepage. It's also on the ABC Listen app. Telstra has become the latest telco to suffer from a data breach after thousands of staff members' personal data was made public. Now it says the data from its core Medibank brand was also hacked. Millions of Australians are being warned they could face a higher risk of online scams and identity theft after Optus revealed it was hit by one of the biggest cyber attacks in Australian history. You get the idea. Corporate Australia has seen a number of high-profile cyber attacks over the last nine months. The most recent was Latitude Financial in March. Cyber attacks are a risk, a risk that's clearly increasing. And we have a product to deal with risk. It's called insurance. So how are these attacks affecting insurance? Winley Toe is an actuary. She's a principal at Taylor Fry. She's also the lead author of the Actuaries Institute Green Paper on Cyber, which came out just before the Optus hack. Winley, what impacts have those hacks had? Well, it's fair to say that it's certainly been a massive wake-up call for Australian businesses. A recent survey showed that 80% of the larger businesses now have a a higher cyber spend than they ever had before. And it's a real top concern for board members. So the AICD, that's the Australian Institute of Company Directors, they released a publication last year entitled Cybersecurity Governance uh, for Boards. And I'm, I'm told in speaking with them that it's the most downloaded publication ever. And the ARCD have been around for a number of years. Yeah. So it's, a, it's really top of mind. So how has that played out when it comes to insurance for, for cyber attack or cyber disruption? Well, there's certainly a lot more companies. There's sort of news of scores of companies calling up their insurers and their brokers saying, you know, do I have adequate cyber cover? And... Because there's, in Australia there's a very limited pool of providers, it's often been said that this particular insurance has too many exclusions or it's too high cost and it doesn't offer value. Mm. But, you know, I certainly disagree. There's, there's a lot of value from cyber insurance. With these attacks, it has been pretty clear, I think, through some of the things that various security-connected agencies have said, that some attacks at least have been backed by states which implies, uh, I suppose, a greater level of proficiency and effectiveness in the attack. Does that have implications for the insurance? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, there's limits to how far the insurance or the private insurance industry can go to mitigating the risks of really catastrophic, large-scale cyber attacks. Lloyd's 
has moved to try to ban or in- introduce exclusions to exclude state-backed cyber attacks and cyber war, yeah. um, but it's yet to be tested in the courts. It's not that simple. Lloyds of London, everybody knows about them and what they do will have an effect on what other insurance providers do. That's absolutely right because their uh, market bulletins for cyber exclusions are in the public domain. So other insurers will will look to what Lloyds do. It's not that easy, however, to attribute a cyber attack to a state actor and so on because it could be that a criminal gang is, is acting in concert with a state and there's real diplomatic consequences for getting it wrong. So it's not something that governments tend to come out with and attribute to one state or another. Is there a position that the insurance industry is taking on banning ransom payments? There is certainly a lot of talk around uh, banning ransomware payments. It's something that the government recommends that people do not pay, although it's not uh, legislated. At face value, it seems very simple, right? Ban it and then you yeah. know, no one will get any claims. But I think... It's a more nuanced topic than that. If you ban ransomware payments, in some cases, you know, some businesses will go under uh, if they don't get their digital assets back. And the release of sensitive individual information could be quite harmful. Um, In the US, the FBI has told Congress that banning ransom payments could inadvertently create opportunities for further extortion. So... It's not that simple. It's something that really, I think, merits uh, further debate and potentially cross-border collaboration between governments, insurers and so forth. Now, you mentioned that with those three big hacks that we've seen, that there were people ringing their brokers, finding out their cover. What about actually, though, in in buying, in, in getting cyber insurance? Up to now, premium increases have been rising and rising. Yeah. It's just a reflection of the exponentially increasing cyber losses in the market. But uh, news is out there amongst the insurers and brokers that really premiums are starting to stabilise. So that means, you know, perhaps that the take-up will be a little bit higher. At, at least that's what the hope is. Oh, OK. So, so the, the premium costs are starting to level out and that means people will buy. Certainly that's what I that, think. OK. <laughs> Because in the Green Paper last year, you identified a couple of, well, six gaps from memory. One of them was cyber hesitancy. So this is some firms believing that just having cyber insurance would make them more of a target. Yes, I think there were a number of myths out there in the market. Um, Some firms indeed did believe that having cyber insurance would make them more of a target. And what I was surprised to find was that there was a limited understanding amongst boards. A lot of boards were perpetuating the myth that insurers become what you call shadow directors in a cyber event. I want to clarify that. So the the fear is that if you've got cyber insurance and then you're troubled by a cyber event, that the insurance company calls the shots. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. So they think the, the insurance company will come in and, and suddenly they are no longer, they are shadow, they are shadow board effectively. Yeah. But that's patently untrue because insurance companies are there to support boards, not to take over the role of boards. Right. Another gap that you identified was in the SMEs. And we have a lot of them in the Australian economy. And they're mostly, or they were mostly not that well educated on, on cyber. And I think only 20% had insurance cover. H- has that changed in the in the nine months or so since you put that paper out? 
the percentages haven't been recorded um, right. since then. But certainly a lot more people are paying attention. It's been in the news and mm. so on. So there's certainly a lot more awareness. Plus in the recent uh, government budget that came out last month, there was uh, money put aside, you know, over $100 million for cyber resilience, yeah. of which a significant portion goes to educating and awareness to small and medium enterprises. So certainly, you know, everyone is on board, the government, insurers and so, so forth, to get small companies aware of the risks that, that are out there from cyber. Yeah. So if someone listening now is a business owner and they are thinking about getting cyber insurance, what sort of questions is the insurance company going to ask them? Okay, if you want coverage nowadays, you will need to have adequate controls in place. It's just like having a lock on your front door, yeah, for yeah. instance. So multi-factor authentication, adequate firewalls and so forth. But I think in the nine months since our green paper, insurers are moving beyond uh, do you have the right controls in place to... Um, more focus on on resilience. So not if, but when you will be attacked. So insurers want to know, do you have adequate uh, response effectiveness? Do you have backups, manual workarounds, other processes in place to restore normal service? So it's sort of saying we are seeing a rise in these attacks. It is likely at some point that you will be attacked. You've got to have a plan of knowing what to do. It's not enough to have as good a security as you manage in buying some insurance. That's right. It's certainly true that the Optus, Bank, and so on have, have are the high-profile attacks. But if yeah. you actually look, the number of attacks on smaller companies are also rising. You know, in the in the double digits. And and, and they're less well placed to deal with them, of course. That's right. Is the insurance market, in terms of the products it provides, is it evolving different kinds of cover? Because it's still relatively an immature market, isn't it? Uh, yes and no. The products are now really evolving quite quickly right. to meet business needs because people are better understanding what the key losses can come from. So insurers are open to coverages that are non-standard, you know, that really push the boundaries. That's beyond just the cost of restoring systems or fines. So they're talking about things like business interruption, with reputational harm cover, putting a dollar value on, on brand and reputation, all really, really good, mm. important things that will really help businesses get back on their feet. It actually sounds like this whole area is changing sort of very quickly in front of your eyes. Yeah, the risks are changing. That's why the green paper was very hard to write. In the nine months that I was writing the paper, it, it kept changing. And in the end, we had to release it. And conveniently, we released it in the same week that the uh, Optus hack occurred. Not lucky for Optus, but good timing for you. Not lucky for Optus, but yes, yes. But I think it garnered a lot of publicity, which was really good. And I think the Green Paper was the first place, I believe, that gathered the perspectives from all different entities. So we're talking insurers, the community, brokers, companies large to the very small. Such a complicated issue, cyber, that it really requires collaboration from all parties to bring their um, respective skills and frameworks you know, to help solve the problem. Well, that was the key message from the Green Paper. It has been really interesting having you on the show. Thank you very much for well, joining us. Well, thank you. Us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Richard. Actuary Winley Toe. And that is it for now. Next time on The Money, the rent crisis. It keeps getting worse, but why? And what are the knock-on effects? The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidy.
ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.